Hey guys, this is Eric. I'm one of the ministers here at the Robertsdale Church of Christ. I just want to say thank you for checking out this message, and I'd like to invite you to join us for worship on Sundays at 1030 if you're ever in the Robertsdale area. If you want to find out more information about the Robertsdale Church, head over to our website at robertsdalechurch.com. All right, let's get to the message. I'm praying that God will use this message to bless you and will help you grow closer to Jesus Christ. So on, on May 7, 2002, almost 21 years ago to the day, the Philadelphia 76ers, which are an NBA basketball team, had had their season come to an end in a really disappointing loss. It was a 33-point blowout loss. And uh, about four days after that, there was their star franchise player, a guy by the name of Allen Iverson, who held a press conference. And at the end of the season, they sort of do an exit interview and an exit press conference. And he uttered one of the most famous lines that has ever been said in that press conference where he said, practice? We talking about practice? That's as good as my Allen Iverson uh, impression gets. But it was an interesting comment. So what I want to do today is I want to talk about practice. Maybe this morning, if it's your first time here, you may have noticed something in our lobby. If you've been here a while, you probably didn't notice it because it wasn't new. It's been there a pretty long time. It's been there as long as we've been here. I'm assuming longer than that. And so the more comfortable we get with a place, the less we pay attention. But if today was your first time or you're newer here, you probably noticed those banners that sit right in the front of the lobby. I mean, as soon as you walk through the doors, it's one of the first things that you see. And you might have even taken time to read it or on the front of the bulletin, you notice with the graphic that right there at the bottom, there's that phrase, a, pray, a place where faith is practiced, hope is shared, and love is experienced. And I love that line because that sums up who we want to be as a church family. That line predates us being here, and I love it in the wisdom that the leadership had however many years ago in coming up with that motto or tagline that describes who we want to be as a church family. And so I thought it was important for us on a regular basis to think about who we're trying to be. And so last week we started this series called Welcome Home, where we're kind of walking through what kind of church we want to be. And Last week we talked about how we want to be a place to belong and that was a challenging conversation because belonging is a perception-based value. No one can tell you that you belong. You have to feel like you belong and the challenge for us is to do all that we can to help you feel like you belong here because we do believe that every person belongs here and we want to be a place where people can belong. Well today I want to talk about that top line, a place where faith is practiced. Next Sunday is Senior Sunday so Dylan, our youth minister, is going to be bringing us a special message as we honor our graduating seniors. And then the week after that is Mother's Day. And I'm excited about that because we're going to talk about how it's a place to be messy. And if you're a mom, I just really think you're going to appreciate that concept as we all recognize and admit that we're all a mess. And then the two weeks after that, we're going to hit the next two points on our banner, a place where hope is shared and a place where love is experienced. And then we'll get to the summer and we'll all breathe a sigh of relief. Just kidding. We'll be way busier during the summer than we are right now, and we'll all just keep plugging right along. But I want to talk about what does it mean to be a place where faith is practiced, because that's a nice little line, and it's short, and it's easy to remember, but what does it actually mean? And I 
appreciate the line that uh, the section of scripture that Max just read to us from Matthew chapter 7. Because according to Jesus, as he's ending the Sermon on the Mount, he says that everyone who hears these words of mine is like that wise man. Where are my VBS people at? You remember that wise man building that house upon the... Wow, nobody's awake. That wise man building that house upon the rock. Normally you fall asleep a little bit later in the sermon. Stay with me. Just kidding. You don't do that. And he talked about what makes that wise man wise is by hearing the words that he has said in the words of God and doing them, or as the NIV says, putting them into practice. And what differentiates the wise man from the foolish man is the foolish man who built his house upon the sand. He heard the words, but did not put them into practice. So just based on that, I want to kind of give you the big idea of what we're going to talk about today. What it means to be a place where faith is practiced, practically speaking, means that we are a place where what we say on Sunday impacts how we live on Monday. Everything that we celebrate and sing together and share together and read together from God's word, everything that we talk about in our message that comes from God's word, the things that we think about and talk about during times of communion, all of that, our relationships one another before and after the gathering, it all impacts how we live on Monday. If what we do here on Sunday does not have an impact on what you do on Monday, then one of two things is true. Either we're ineffective or you're just not paying attention. One of those two things is true. So we want to be people who practice what we preach. And that might be the hardest thing we're ever going to do. Because it's hard to practice what you preach. I stand before you as a person who doesn't always practice what I preach. But I want to consistently, more consistently do that every day. We're all a work in progress, right? We're all being sanctified through the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to have moments where we do well. But as a gathering, as a community of believers, we want to be a place where what we do on Sunday impacts how we live on Monday. So let's talk about what it means. I want to look at a line, a couple lines from a letter written by the half-brother of Jesus. Could you imagine being the brother of Jesus? It'd be awesome for Jesus to be your savior. It'd be terrible for Jesus to be your brother because he never did anything wrong, literally never did anything wrong. Imagine growing up with Jesus as your oldest brother. We already think the older, oldest siblings do everything right. He literally did. But at some point, James comes to this decision that Jesus isn't just his older brother but he's his savior and he's his Lord and he becomes a devoted follower of Jesus and he becomes a great leader in the church and he writes what might be the most practical letter in all of the Bible. It's only five chapters long. You can read it from start to finish in less than 30 minutes, about 20 minutes or so, depending on your reading speed. And it's just jam packed. And so I encourage you, read it from start to finish and then just spend a lot of time with every line that's written in it because it will impact how you live. And what you'll notice is that James ties a lot of the teachings that Jesus gave in the Sermon on the Mount and he puts skin and bones on and he shows what it actually means. And his big idea is simply this, faith does. Faith does. What does faith do? Faith does a lot of things. And in our text in James chapter 2, he's going to show us three things in particular that faith 
with us. So if you got your Bible, it's a little bit longer. I didn't want to put it on the screen. I want you to actually open up your Bible, or if you're like me and you're going a little lazy, and I'm going to read it off of the device because I left my Bible down there, so I'm going to read it off of my iPad. I want to read from James 2, 14 through 26. It's an important text. It's a challenging text, and then we'll spend the rest of our time unpacking what it means. James 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if somebody claims to have faith but has no deeds? What does he mean by faith? He means that a lifestyle that is devoted to trusting in God and doing what he says. And then that other phrase that he uses, that other word is deeds, or maybe your translation, if it's not deeds, it's probably works. And that just means the fruit of what happens when you trust in God. That's now getting into your relationships with one another because our relationship with God directly impacts our relationship with others. When we say we love God, we will live that out through the things that we do because faith does. So suppose somebody says they have faith but has no deeds. Can such faith save them? Well, suppose a brother or sister is without food and daily clothes. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is that kind of faith? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But somebody will say, well, you have faith and I have deeds. So then James says, well, show me your faith without deeds show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there's one God. Congratulations. Even the demons believe that and they shudder. Man, this is rich. You foolish person. Do you want to, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, not by faith alone. In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So what I want to do is I want to unpack what he is telling us, what does it mean to practice faith? Three things in particular. We could spend a lot more time, but we're going to try to just cover three this morning. The first one of what it means to practice faith is complete trust and obedience to God. Now, the story that he references is completely insane. You can read about it in Genesis chapter 22. And really, more than that, you got to you got to start in about Genesis chapter 12 to get the full effect of the life of Abraham. Here's a guy when we meet him in Genesis 12, he's 75 years old and his name is Abram. And God's going to rename him to Abraham later in the story. And he's got a wife who's 65 years old and her name is Sarai and her name is later going to be changed to Sarah. Maybe you've heard about Abraham and Sarah. And at 75 and 65, they have no children because Sarah was barren. She couldn't have a child. And so what does God do? He comes to this elderly couple. And let's just make sure you understand. I know there were people who lived a long time early in the story of the Bible, but 65 was 65. 65 was not 25 because people were living a lot longer. No, 65 was 65. So if you're 65 here today, you know exactly what it feels like to be a 65-year-old. That's how Sarah felt when God came to her husband and said, by the way, I know you have no kids, but I'm going to give you descendants as numerous as the stars. And he promised that she would have a child. That's not funny, is it? I can maybe say that's kind of funny. Actually, I don't because I don't know what I would do if I was 75 as Abram when this happens. And God says, you're going to have a baby. 
And then what does God do to make it even better? He makes them wait 25 more years to have the baby. So let's do, it's not simple math. There's no such thing as simple math for me. Let's just do math. And at 65 plus 25 is 90. You may want to double check me on that. And 75 plus 25 is 100. They are really old, really old. Now, I don't know the last time we threw a baby shower for a 90-year-old, but I'm going to guess never, right? And at 90 years old, Sarah goes into labor. She has a baby that she's waited her entire life to have. And about 12 years later, most scholars believe Isaac is around age 12. God comes to Abraham. And he says, I want you to take your son, Isaac, your only son whom you love, and go to the mountain that I will show you and sacrifice him there. This is the son of promise. This is the one who's going to make Abraham's descendants as numerous as the stars. Isaac is 12. He's not married. He has no kids. If Isaac dies, there are no descendants as numerous as the stars from the family line of Abraham. The family line is over at that point. And what does Abraham do? He doesn't argue. He doesn't ask God if he's lost his mind. He starts to gather everything together. And he gets his son and he gets a caravan. And they start heading off for a couple days journey. And they get to the mountain. And he tells his servants, the lad and I are going to go worship and we'll come back to you. They're walking up the mountain. And Isaac, they've done this before. They've made sacrifices to God. And he starts piecing some things together. He says, Father, here's the wood. Here's everything we need for the altar, but we're missing a key component. We're missing the lamb that's going to be sacrificed on this altar as we worship God. Abraham, with you can only imagine all the pain in his heart, says, God will provide my son. Get to the top of the mountain. He starts putting everything together. Makes this wood altar and he goes to his son and he pins his son down and he hog ties him. And he takes him and he picks him up and he lays him on the altar. And if you're Isaac, you've not experienced this before. You're 12 years old. You're saying, Dad, what are you doing? This isn't funny. And Abraham is silent. And he takes the knife and he raises it up and he's about to plunge it into the chest of his baby boy. Praise God, the angel said, Stop. Stop. Now I know that you trust me. Man, what a story. What a story of complete trust and obedience to God. This is the story that James is referencing when he says, faith without works is dead. If what we do on Sunday doesn't impact us Monday through Saturday, it's dead. Now I know what some of you are thinking. You're sitting there thinking, I have a child that's around age 12, and I think God may be calling me to do what Abraham did. No, he's not calling you. There will be no child sacrifices today. I better not see any, and I'm parenting too around that age. I better not see any kids hogtied after the service. That's not what God is calling you to do, okay? But here's my question for you. What is God calling you to surrender to him? Because every one of us, in some area of our life, God is calling for complete surrender. Here's what I know about me that I'm going to assume is true about you as well, because we're humans. We're good at surrendering the stuff we're good at surrendering. 
Meaning there's certain areas of our life that I'll say, yeah, God, you can have this. Completely good with that. But then there's something else. Maybe it's a 10% of the life. Maybe it's a 5%. Maybe it's a 1%. It's something that I have a hard time letting go. Could be maybe financial goals in life. Could be my, some relationships. Could be career occupation. Could be a sinful habit or a desire or an addiction that I've never let go. And, and I just kind of hold it right here and I say, God, you can have all of this, but this little bit, this is mine. And that's what God is after. I don't know what it is for you. You do and God does. And God is saying, will you lay that on the altar and surrender it? Because that is the only way that we can completely trust him. And what does it mean to be a place that practices faith? What it means is that as a church, what we should regularly be doing is celebrating and sharing stories of complete trust and obedience to God. Where somebody makes a decision that there's something that they have surrendered to him and you're not sharing it for all the praise and glory to go to you, but to God to show trust and surrender to him. And you may not even want to share it, but we share it on your behalf because what gets celebrated, you've heard me say, will get repeated. And if we want to be a place that practices faith, then every one of us on a daily basis has something that we are surrendering to him, a part of heart, something that's going on in our life that we lay before him and we say, God, this is yours. I'm not going to hold on to it anymore. I'm going to trust that your way of living is better. And then we celebrate that and we share that together. And we talk about how hard it was to let it go, but man, God took it out of my hands and it was so much better. Let's go back to Abraham for just a second. There's a little part of the story that we don't learn about until much later in the Bible. In Hebrews chapter 11, it's talking about Abraham and it's talking about this scene in his life where he passes the test of complete trust. And it says there that Abraham trusted God so much that even if God allowed him to go through with it, that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead. Now folks, that is complete trust and that's the goal. Whatever it is that you're letting go, God will raise it into something greater. That's the promise. That's what it means to practice faith. That's the first thing James says. Number two is sacrificial generosity. And he gives a really practical example. He says, suppose there's somebody that you come into contact with who has a physical need. And you, tell to, you say to that person, God's going to provide that need. Bless you. I'm praying for you. Peace. And you don't do anything. We failed. What he's getting at is what Jesus talked about, how our checkbook and our bank account is directly tied to our heart. And we as a church want to be a place that practices sacrificial generosity. This is a thread that runs all throughout the Bible. In Acts chapter 2, at the very birth of the church, it says, as you read about this early church, that there was not a needy person among them. People were selling things. You read about in Acts chapter 4 that you got this guy who sells this plot of land and brings the proceeds and just lays it down at the feet of the apostles and says, here, help as many people as you can with that. That's sacrificial generosity. In Acts chapter 6, there's this story where you've got these widows who were in need and they weren't receiving the food. And so that's the story of the first deacons being put into place. And they, in essence, began this Meals on Wheels program to make sure that everybody who was in need receive food. You keep reading throughout the New Testament, you come to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, and it's a, 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 a conversation that Paul is having with this church in Corinth where he's reminding them that there are people in Jerusalem, brothers and sisters in Christ that are going through a famine and they're struggling. And 
They had promised in Corinth that they would help with that. And he's reminding them that they need to be ready when he comes through so that they can send their gift back with him to the brethren who are in Jerusalem. A year later, in a letter called 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, they haven't made right on their promise. And he's not trying to pressure them. He's not trying to burden them. He's just saying, you committed to the Lord to help your brothers and sisters. I want you to consider how Jesus was poor for our sakes, was rich, yet became poor for our sakes. And I want you to give out of the grace that God has blessed you with. Out of your abundance, help those who are in need. This is the story of the New Testament. Did you know hospitals had their beginning because of sacrificially generous Christians who cared for the sick? Did you know that orphanages were created by Christians who loved those who had been, those babies who had been left to die? This is the marker of what it means to be a faithful child of God. It means to be sacrificially generous. Now, we all go through different seasons of life, and we all have times of life where maybe there's a little bit extra margin and times where there's not. But what we don't need to fall into the trap of is to begin to point people back to a location for help as opposed to the church that God has placed in their path. If you come across a need and you say, hey, my church can help you, and you send them here, you've missed the point. God already sent them to the church because you are the church. And then that moment, the challenge is, is that we've lived with enough margin to bless that individual and to help them. And maybe that need is greater than something that you can accomplish yourself. So what should you do when there's a need greater than you can accomplish yourself? Pray and find other Christians to help you. And that's when we as the church step in and we say, yes, how can we help? How can we serve? How can we bless? But God has sent the church to them and then maybe bring them back. I don't know if you know this, but we have a food pantry. We have a benevolence ministry. This is a church that is very generous, and we always want to be that type of place to help as many people as God places right in our path. Now, today is also a fifth Sunday, and there's a lot that's been going on in our church over the last several weeks. Today's a big day with Spring Fling. Today's a big day with Praise in the Park. And fifth Sunday just kind of got like lost in the announcements. We've mentioned it, but it's hard to focus on a ton of large things that are going on. And you may be like, what's Fifth Sunday? Let me tell you about the wisdom of our church leadership here. I can't speak highly enough of our elders. And I don't know how long this has been going on, but it's beautiful and it's glorious. Our church operates off of a monthly budget. What that means is four times a year, there are Fifth Sunday offerings that are not a part of our budget. Four times a year. We had one, I believe, in January, if I'm not mistaken. We have one now today. We have another one in September, and then I believe New Year's Eve, if I'm not mistaken, is also a fifth Sunday. What that means is that that entire offering goes toward future growth. It does not go toward paying bills and overhead and salaries and other ministries. The entire offering goes into a special fund for future growth. Now, you may have remembered that a couple of weeks ago, our elders stood up, Matt stood up one Sunday, and he announced that as a church, we are completely debt-free, and we praise God for that. And it, that's due to the wisdom of our leadership of being diligent and through your generosity to make that happen so that at just the right time, we are completely debt-free. So today, what that means is what you're about to give in just a moment. And I'd love for the men who are going to help pass those trays to go ahead and get ready to do that here in just a second. 
And I wanted to take up the offering during the lesson and know this is not me, my sermon's over. I'm not quite done yet. I'm going to come back. So hold tight. You're not getting out early today or on time. Sorry. What you're giving today is planting a seed. Because what you're giving today has not even been fully realized yet. We have no clue what is next, but God's going to lead us there. Okay? And we need to each be praying over that as a church family for what God is calling us to do. So today what I want you to imagine is whether you give here in person and you give by check or you put some cash in the plate or whether you give online or you even go, oh goodness, I didn't even know today was the fifth Sunday. I wasn't prepared. And you're going to do that this entire week. The offering will go toward a future project. And what I want you to imagine is that as you make that offering, what you're doing is you've taken a shovel, you've dug a hole in the ground, and you have planted a seed. Because that's what today's offering is. It's planting a seed for future growth. And whatever is coming in the future will not be for our greater comfort. Because what we do not need to be as a church is more comfortable. What we need to be is more cross-driven and cross-focused and more sacrificial. And yes, we are a cross-focused church, but you know what our natural tendency is as humans? It's to get more comfortable. And whatever that future plan is, it will be for growth. It will be for ministering to other people who don't yet know Jesus. It will be to bless our community in a way that shows them the love of Jesus. Have no idea what it's gonna be. So today we're planting a seed and it's gonna have time to, grow under the soil. And in September, we'll come back and have another fifth Sunday offering. And at the end of the year, and however long it takes us to come up with this plan and to be financially ready to make it happen, every instance till then, you're digging a hole in the ground and you're planting a seed. And then we're going to water it. And we're going to watch God give the increase and God bless it. So today, you're not just giving to an account, to a fund, You're giving for something that maybe the next generation is going to reap the fruit from. That some person who doesn't yet know Jesus, that you don't even know yet, is going to be blessed by. That's what we're doing today. That's why I wanted us to take up this offering during the sermon. Not because of what I say is so powerful, because we need to read God's word and challenge ourselves with sacrificial generosity To say, you know what, maybe today I can dig a little bit deeper. Yeah, it might make things a little tighter and a little uncomfortable, but praise God, I can sacrifice just a little bit for him because of the way Jesus so graciously sacrificed for me. And let me say one other thing before I pray for us. Jesus said, and Paul quoted Jesus, that God loves a cheerful giver. The metric of giving is not the amount on the check or the amount of cash in your hand or the amount that's on your phone if you're giving online. That's not the metric. The metric is the amount of joy in your heart. So listen to me. If there is no joy in your heart over what you're about to give, don't give it. Don't give it. God doesn't want it. And neither do we. You probably never heard a preacher say We don't want your money. If there's no joy in your heart, hold on to it. What God is after and what we want to celebrate together too 
means to give joyfully. It's a joy to sacrifice for God and his creation. It's a joy. And if that is the feeling in your heart, then we're going to pray together. We're going to pass these trays. And if today you go, man, I wasn't quite prepared for that, you just, you make it right this week or you say in a month, you say, hey, by the way, I couldn't then, but I want this to go toward that now. I want to plant a seed, then however we can do that. I promise you when I come back up, I'll try to keep it. I shouldn't make promises I can't deliver on. I'll try my best to be brief because I know we're running out of time. But let's pray together and then I'll have a couple more thoughts. These guys are going to pass the trays here in just a moment. And then we'll conclude our gathering together. I want to finish out what James tells us because I think this third point is so powerful and it's so practical as he talks about counterculture living. And what the story that James references is a short little story in in Joshua, in the book of Joshua, about this woman who's not a, a Jewish woman. She's not a Hebrew. She lives in Jericho. And there's these spies that come in to spy out the land. And when she sees them, she instantly realizes Jericho is about to fall. And so she completely goes against her culture and she hides them at her house and she gets them out of the city after they've spied out the land and then she asks them to show her mercy when they come to overtake the city. She knew that Yahweh was up to something and she wanted to serve him the rest of her life. Rahab has a story that we don't want any individual to have up until this point. Her vocation is something you never want any person to go into. Yet God uses her as a part of the story and has left her story for us to show us that regardless of what your past is like, there is a whole new future that God has in store. And when we turn back toward him, it is generally a turn against the way that culture is heading. Now, I'm going to assume that several of us in this room would agree our culture is headed in a direction that we don't want it to go. But I also believe that Pretty much all of us in this room would have to agree that based on the story of the Bible, culture has always been headed in a direction that God doesn't want it to go. And so his people have been marked by counterculture living, by standing on certain tenets of truth on his word and faithfully and and being convicted by that, live in a way that is different and is unique. Paul would say, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Don't be shaped into the way the world wants you to be, but be transformed through the renewing of your mind by the power of God's spirit. So a couple of things I want to give you before we close, ways that we can live counterculturally. And when I say these things, I don't say, and I don't want you to take away, we need to go protest. Absolutely not. No one's heart has ever been changed from a protest. What we need to do is we need to learn that lesson that Paul said about speaking the truth in love. The key there is in love, standing in love on the truth of God's word in a way that might go against what culture says, but in a way that shows that we are marked as people of faith. The first one is to be people who are marked by purity. We live in a very impure society. We live in a world that does not value the body that is a human temple for the Holy Spirit to dwell in. We live in a world that one of the largest industries that we have is the exploitation of people in the pornography industry. We live in a world where the number of people who are actively viewing and using that type of material is astounding 
and is incredibly high amongst Christians. So if you want to be a person who lives counterculturally, who practices faith, start by living a pure life in your relationships, treating one another, treating your significant other as a person in which the Spirit of God dwells, a person created in His image where you will respect who they are and you will respect yourself and you will break any types of addictions that might be present in your life to things that you are viewing and using that are only destroying you and your relationships. That's the first thing that we can do to live counterculturally. Second, something we can do to live counterculturally is we can stand for the unborn and the protection of all human life. I did not say we go protest. I said we stand together for the life of the unborn. I am so thankful that however many months ago Roe v. Wade was overturned and in some capacity, the number of unborn children who had been aborted, that that number will hopefully go down. Sixty-something million babies had been aborted since Roe v. Wade came into action. Folks, we just aborted somebody who was going to be president. We aborted somebody who was going to cure cancer. We aborted somebody who was going to bring the next great technological advancement. We aborted them. And thankfully that's changed, but let's not be naive that just because Roe v. Wade was overturned does not mean abortion has ended. The black market will just increase. And, and as God's people, we need to remember the grace that we should have with all individuals who make mistakes, some whose mistakes are more visible than others, and we gracefully walk with any individual or couple who's become pregnant outside of the confines of marriage. And we say, yeah, I'm a sinner too. And we're going to be here to love you and, and hold you up so that nobody in our gathering, nobody in our church, nobody in your life would ever feel pressure to even consider the concept of something like abortion because they're afraid of the judgment from God's people in their own family. That's how we can live counterculturally that we walk with and love and wrap our arms around all people who have sinned. And we say we value every life. That's very counterculture today. I got a whole list. I'll just give you one more. And I don't even know if it's the best one to give you. I'll just share this with you because I think it goes with what we just did in our offering. I think another way we can live counterculturally is that we don't get caught up, and I'm speaking to my heart first, hear me preaching to me first, please, okay? That we don't get caught up in the consumeristic, materialistic propaganda that's going on in our world that can so easily overtake my heart and maybe yours too. But we learn what Paul said was a secret, and man, it's truly a secret, the secret to being content. And what that will allow us to do is, one, to not be overburdened with debt, which is a, a bondage in our life. Two, it allows us to live with margin so that when God places those people in our life who need help, we don't have to say, oh, I don't have anything. No, I've, I've intentionally lived with margin to say, yeah, I can help. Even if all that means is you just put a $10 bill somewhere deep in your wallet that you'll forget about and never touch until that moment comes and you have something to help. 
you put a go bag in your car for somebody that has physical needs that you can say, here's a bottle of water, some protein bars, whatever, that you can say, here, I have food for you. I can bless you and help you right now. We live with margin. Because what will happen is as we continue to just go along with culture, is that this consumeristic, materialistic propaganda that's going on will leave you with thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars of debt that you can never live the way that God is truly calling you to live, free from all of that. I don't stand before you as a person who's debt-free. I'm not debt-free. I'm a person that's fighting the propaganda, okay? Fighting the propaganda in my own heart every day. Sometimes I do good. Sometimes I don't do good. Sometimes I'm ready for something new. Sometimes I'm riddled with guilt over what's going on in my heart. It's a conflict. It's a battle of the flesh and the spirit Paul talks about in Galatians 5. It's counterculture living. To live with that kind of margin and generosity and trust in God. That's what we want to be. A place that is marked by people who faithfully serve Jesus. And we hold one another up. We encourage one another. And we're there for one another when we fail. We say, it's okay. God's got you. We got you too. None of us is perfect. We're all sinners in need of the grace of God. And we're faithfully walking together hand in hand, trying to bless our community, bless our world, share the good news of Jesus, meet the needs of people, their physical needs, so that we can speak in to their spiritual life and say, this might fill your belly, but Jesus wants to fill your life. And I want to tell you about him. That's the kind of church that we want to be. So next Sunday or Wednesday night, when you walk back in or before you leave and you read that little line on the sign that says a place where faith is practiced, it's not just an encouraging little line. It might be one of the most difficult things we're ever going to do is to actually practice what we preach. So my question for you is this, how will what we've talked about and worshiped about and sang together and thought about and prayed about today, what's it going to do for you tomorrow? If you're here this morning and you're ready to give your life to Christ, we want to celebrate that. We want to encourage you and help you in any way that we can. If you need prayers of the church, you want our shepherds to pray with you and to pray over you, you want people to walk with you through the struggles of life, you have any kind of physical need that we can help you, we want you to let us know. Our shepherds will be up front. They'll also be in the back. If you'd like to respond forward or respond to the back, you need to find somebody that's sitting near you, somebody in this church family that you know, that you trust, and say, I need some prayers and encouragement. I need some help. I need somebody to walk with me whatever God is calling you to do to respond to his word today won't you do it as we stand together and sing